This is Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. My name is John Chandler. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to fall. Took a little break there as summer wound down, but kicking things back off here as we get into the normal rhythms of fall, if such a thing exists. Have a few interviews lined up to be rolling back out on a bi-weekly basis. Excited about those, happy about those. Have a good interview for you today. Another, a little bit of a unique angle, unique take. I love hearing the nuances of different people's sermon prep and what they ingest and how they process the things that they're thinking about, both based on tradition they might come from and personality. That person today is Jeremy Ashworth. Jeremy was recommended as a friend of a friend. He is the pastor of Circle of Peace Church, which is in Peoria, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. Jeremy was excited to get into this, and he brings a lot of energy all the way through the podcast, which he'll pick up on. But you'll notice, uh, even as I transition out of this intro and into the interview itself, that it kind of picks right up in the conversation, because I just recorded as we were starting to talk, and pretty soon we were into it. So brace yourself. We're off and running with Jeremy Ashworth. Yeah, so we um, we're in suburban Phoenix, yeah, um, and that's that's sort of how I express it. Locals call it the West Valley, Peoria, Arizona, not Peoria, Illinois. Um, for sports fans, we're really close to the Spring Training Center. My office is like ten minutes from there. We're probably mm-hmm. twenty twenty five minutes from a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Was in was in Arizona, so yeah. that's that's part of what part of what this area is known for. But I've actually I've actually pastored three pretty different churches and three very different areas. One in the Midwest, one in the Northwest, and now one in the Southwest. So Indiana, uh Seattle, suburban Seattle, and now suburban Phoenix. So I also I grew up in a little white country church, um, kind of in the middle of a cornfield. So I have not a ton of experience, but I have a little bit of experience in a lot of different places, rural, urban, suburban, um, and all of that feeds, feeds into, feeds into my formation and my identity and my ministry and also my preaching. And what, talk about the, uh, the tradition you're part of, or at least the the church that you're in now is part of, and I assume that's always been your tradition, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so I, I am a pastor. I'm an ordained um, pastor in the Church of the Brethren. I actually um, got my first step in credentialing when I was 17. So I started preaching from a, a pretty from a pretty young age. And yeah, the Church of the Brethren is my um, is my denominational family. This church historically um, is a Church of the Brethren congregation, and that all that all feeds into the. Um, the sort of contextual identity as well. So what what's distinctive then between knowing that you come from that church background, which, mm-hmm. you know, on its own is a little bit of a, it's going to be a little bit more at the margins, you know, culturally and even like mainstream Christianity. I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that, you know, knowing you've had this rural context and then the Pacific Northwest, yeah. where were you, where were you in the Seattle area? You said suburban. Yeah. Yeah. So we initially lived in the city and um, then we were called um, from living in the city to live in the suburbs in Covington, which is just outside of Kent. Um, oh, yeah. OK. I had, a, I had a colleague in ministry who called that area redneck high tech 
because nice. it was close enough to the mountains that you got um, you got away from some of the libertarian or liberalism of the what they call the saltwater vote. But um, you also had folks who were there, Microsoft, Boeing, REI, who were a part of that tech culture as well. So it was a it was a great place to live because it was a combination of cultures that was really more Washingtonian than um than, than Seattle, strictly speaking, but super, um, super great place to be, super great place to do ministry. And even though I grew up in a rural context, you know, when I was in Indiana, we were on the south side of, of Fort Wayne, Indiana. So Fort Wayne, maybe a quarter of a million people, but we were, we were sort of in the hood or we were on the edge of the hood. So even though it was a rural area, the area where a specific part of town we were in was almost more of a, a post rust belt almost a post-industrial sort of area. So, so the church was in a, um, I call it a sort of a classical music church in a hip hop neighborhood mm. in Indiana. So it definitely had the Midwestern sensibility, definitely had a rural sensibility, but it was one of the most urban locations, uh, I've, I've ever, I've ever been in. And Phoenix is just like, we're, we're in the suburban Phoenix and this is hardcore suburbia. So, um, lots of new houses, lots of new development yeah, going on. Yeah. And again, all those places, um, you can't just transplant and take one thing that worked in one place and expect it to grow somewhere else. Um, I had a friend who introduced me to the concept of microclimate and plants. They said, I just moved from one house to another and the houses were just 10 minutes away and half of my house plants died because the sunlight exposure or the elevation uh, change or whatever that that all of those little factors influence what grows, what lives, and what dies in a particular place. And I that has been a helpful metaphor for me in in ministry because um, I think that what grows in a particular place you you can't just replicate um, in the absolute sense and transfer something from one place to another and expect it just expect it just to go. So I'm a ferocious student of 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 context clearly yeah i mean i'm picking that up even as you're talking about these different places so yep. i don't even know that i've said it so far but you're the church you're at now in peoria is circle of peace church yeah so when you talk about the context there you know everything's new i, I lived on the other side of the valley for 11 years when everything okay. was new over there yeah um, so talk about like what is that so when you talk about then being trying to be a student of your context what 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 do you see where you are now that shapes what preaching looks like for you? That's perfect. So I'll take a step back and talk about the <laughs> like it when you could you just after every question I ask, if you could just say that's perfect, that would make me feel really good. <laughs> John, and then I'll I'll do the same for your answers. <laughs> John, that's perfect. That's perfect. I uh, I'll take a step back and talk about the congregation and then some in our context because that's all that's all super important stuff. Um, so Circle of Peace was a church before Arizona was a state. Um, fascinating history. This, this congregation was founded by German immigrant farmers in the 1800s. Um, in that area, there, in that time, there was a, a town called Glendale, uh, and the city fathers of Glendale wanted Glendale to be a nice, quiet farming community and not a shoot-em-up Wild West town which is a very very real possibility in Arizona in the 1800s. And so um, one of the really fascinating sort of church plant story, they, if I understand correctly, they just reached out to, the city fathers reached out to um, churches or denominations or sects that at the time did not drink alcohol. 
Hmm. And so groups that I've never heard of in my life, like the River Brethren, um, I'm, I'm having visions of, oh, brother, where art thou? You know, these right, right, little right. religious groups that come out and they help found this little town. And one of them was the Church of the Brethren that to a lot of people at that time looked Amish, guys with big beards and um, and sort of plain clothing. So they, for a hundred years, it was sort of a German immigrant farmer church um, in an area that was initially rural and farming, um, transitioned to more urban and then sort of inner city. And then a hundred years later, um, and I'm being incredibly unfair to a century long history, but they, they wanted to meet in a different place. And so they moved out of the almost warehouse district where they were and picked a spot in the suburbs and moved, moved out there. So they were, it were a small group of people. They were really committed. Um, they believed if we build it, they'll come. And they built it, right? They they got property yeah. and they built a beautiful little partial structure or part part of the um, part of the finished product got got done. But instead of growing, they they shrank. And uh, after a couple of bumpy transitions and after some decline, the, uh, Circle of Peace got an intervention, basically in the form of a grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call it a, a staff to grow grant. The idea was that um, a full time pastor which they couldn't afford at the time, a full-time pastor would help them kind of realize their original vision of not just moving addresses, but also reaching, reaching a new neighborhood. So as a church, um, Circle of Peace is like a hybrid. We're like an old church in a new building or a, or a legacy church that is positioned like a church plant. And our goal is to function, our goal sort of organizationally is to function with the strengths of both a long established church as well as the strengths of a church plant. Um, so that's the sort of congregational context. Probably three years ago when I started, there were 30 or 40 uh, people in worship. Um, and that's, uh, it can be a really blessed community, but it just wasn't sustainable. And sure. so part of my job was to help be a spiritual and organizational leader and help them grow into their um, original vision. So now, um, like we we have people who are the descendants of those original German immigrant farmers. Like they're still around, but you know, the other week before I left to go on vacation, we had like a hundred people in worship, uh, which was awesome. In the and summer, so, yeah, 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 right. And so the majority of those folks don't have the deep um, background in this specific congregation. They're, those folks are numerically now in a kind of minority. So yes, our denominational family is Church of the Brethren, and we have people who are just dyed in the wool, denominational leaders or the children of, we don't call them bishops, but our equivalent of bishops. Um, we have people who are deep in that tradition, and we have people who have been, now who've been uh, the Roman Catholic or recovering Catholic or evangelical or recovering evangelical or Episcopal Baptist Nazarene or nothing. And that mix of tradition and non-tradition uh, I love that because it, it really keeps you honest. It keeps you from making an idol of your tradition. Um, I can't make a lot of assumptions. I can't just use a word and expect people to know what it means. So the folks are really smart and gracious, and that and that really helps. Um, but I appreciate we're, we're a little bit more diverse than we look, and that is good for me spiritually, and it's good for me as um, it's good for me as a as a leader and as a preacher. And uh, Church of the Brethren is Anabaptist mm-hmm. tradition. Is that correct, correct. or not? Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of folks. We not a lot, but I, we have a significant number of people 
who have encountered Anabaptism uh, on paper or in theory, and they're like, hey, I want to go visit a real-life Anabaptist church and see what it's like. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and we have other people who have no idea about their tradition and don't care or would be freaked out about it if they, if they did now. And so I, we try to be conversant with the realistic, wide variety of people we encounter. Some folks who are just total theo-nerds, um, total Bible geeks, and some people who don't um, – don't have any experience with any of it whatsoever. And so that um, the denominational identity and the uh, Anabaptist identity does play a role. It's definitely not the, uh, the, definitely not the only, definitely not the only factor, definitely not the only factor, but it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a big one. I think our emphasis on service helps people. I think our emphasis on, um, sort of shalom of Jesus and the shalom of the Bible, I think is a really good thing. I think uh, an emphasis on community and on relationships, uh, I think a Christ centeredness, all those things that I believe that come from our tradition, an emphasis on the Bible and on a, on a simple reading of the Bible as much as possible or plain reading of the text whenever possible, an emphasis on application and living the faith. Um, those are just a couple of the things that come from other traditions too. But um, the Anabaptist tradition that I think is a uh, those are huge, huge gifts. It's a little uh, we we will dive into preaching here because that's what I like to talk about. But yeah, I also yeah. like I chase my curiosities from time to time. Yeah, yeah. So man. it's it's been almost twelve years uh, since I lived in suburban Phoenix on the other side. Yeah. So I am, but I did live there for twelve years, and so I recognize things have probably changed. But one of the things that's kind of intriguing and fascinating to me is. I felt, so I was in suburban Phoenix, you know, from the or like 1993, you know, to 2005, which was really when the rise of the megachurch was happening. And in a lot of ways, I mean, there were already megachurches, but that's when megachurches really started to take off. Oh, and yeah. In a lot of ways, I felt like Phoenix was one of the cities where megachurches took off the soonest. And my take was always that because Phoenix is basically because almost everything is man-made in Phoenix, like the yes. grass, the trees, yes. they're not yeah. man-made, but they're placed there, yes. you know, they're, they're landscaped. I, I, I just felt like in a lot of ways, Phoenix was like the Mecca of consumer culture. Mm. And, and so therefore the mega church, which, you know, operates somewhat as a way to address and respond to consumer culture. I, I know I'm generalizing a whole lot here, but, sure. um, you know, I feel like that's why the mega church is really started to take off there. And here you sit, you know, almost in the suburbs with all of this newness all around you. Um, so how are what kind of people are finding their way to? I mean, you talked about some of you talked a little bit about that just now. But what is it about your church and your unique? Yeah, I mean, you're uniquely positioned in suburban Phoenix from <laughs> from my experience there. Uh, what is it that people are finding fresh and unique about Circle of Peace? Oh man, that's a I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm serious. Like sometimes I I just look out at the people who are here, and it doesn't matter if there's twenty or a hundred, and I'm I'm just amazed that uh, people sort of show up for this. That 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 is truly in my heart how I feel. I I think um, I I think living in the West Valley, this is a a lot of big box stores. Yeah, yeah. And so big box church in that sense is really consistent with the culture. And I have friends who work for and with the megas and I, I don't want to say anything. I don't have anything bad to say about them, sure. but that particular embodiment makes sense 
here, right? That's, that's, that's really, that's really legit. Um, I think that, that said that if, if there are people who want a mega church experience, then that's there for them. But that, that isn't necessarily going to resonate, um, isn't necessarily going to resonate with everybody. And for people who are looking for something else, um, Circle of Peace and, and other churches in our area are good, are good, um, are good for that. I think, um, some people, and the, the reasons people connect with us is a variety, honestly. Some people will say, oh, you're small. And like theology aside, I'm just more interested in a small church. Or some people say, I'm interested in discipleship. And the perception is that a mega church is high volume, low commitment. And they want to be a part of a church that they perceive as low volume, high commitment. Um, I'm, I'm not a culture war guy. I'm just not. And so if people want or need that in a church, they won't find it here. But if they want to break from the culture wars or want a different perspective than that, they're going to, um, they're going to kind of find that they're going to kind of find that here. Uh, I think some people who connect with a big church for a while go, man, I'm, I'm a part of this community and it's cool, but they don't really need me. And I know a couple of friends who have benefited from, uh, who are friends who are pastors where folks have come out of a mega church and said, you know what, like, I love that church, but they don't need my, my time or my money or my gifts. I want to go someplace else with more of an entrepreneurial impulse or someplace that, um, I can have some sort of more direct contact. And it's, it's that whole variety of reasons. And some people say, oh, your building looks cool. I'll check it out. Or, oh, you're just closer to home. Um, I'll check it out. So I, I honor all those variety of reasons because I just assume the spirit is at work um, in in all of that. Um, I think uh, I think that said, I'm totally biased toward my people, and I think they're really smart. <laughs> and I think that they're that some of them are people who really like to think. And I um, the fact that people who who like to um, love God with their mind, um, have found us, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm super honored. I'm super honored by that, but I don't, I don't want to make too big of a difference between, Oh, we're just so radically different than the mega churches. Cause right, I, right. I'm super, I'm super far over on the side of, um, we're, we're all working for the kingdom. We're all working for the same God. I, I don't, um, I don't subscribe to the idea that we're somehow that a big church is somehow spiritually superior to a small church or, or, or vice versa. So, um, that's, that's sort of my, my take, but that said, dude, the West Valley is its own animal. I mean, this is American dream country. You come here to buy a spacious and affordable house and raise a family. One pastor said our area, um, he described it as white collar vocation, blue collar mentality. So people are smart, but they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have an intellectual orientation. They're not like, um, wine bar poetry reading type of people they're more like they're they're more like uh, smart entrepreneurs with who are sports bar kind of people so um you know you talk about seattle suburban phoenix compared to seattle is just a fantastic contrast because um seattle is spiritual but not religious and so i've had people there tell me hey i'll never come to your church that's organized religion and organized religion is icky but I'll meet you for coffee and we'll talk about the philosophy of religion and astrophysics. Um, that's Seattle and Phoenix. I've had at times the opposite where, uh, I met a, a, you know, we're moved here and got set up and met a doctor and not a Christian guy. 
But um, he asked me what I did for a living. I said, I'm a pastor. And at the end of the appointment, he was like, hey, man, I'm not really interested in Jesus and I'm not really a Christian, but um, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about church growth because Hmm. he appreciated the entrepreneurial impulse and he liked organizational development. And that's like the opposite of spiritual, but not religious. That's that's just he's not really interested in the content. Um, He's more interested in how the development happens. So that's a. that's that's a pretty stark contrast between one place and another. Seattle is angsty to a fault, birthplace of grunge music. Yeah. Suburban Phoenix is positive to a fault. Um, but that where if I can try to drag that toward preaching, being in suburban Phoenix has pushed my preaching out of the purely intellectual, which I do love. And that has encouraged in me um, a sense of playfulness which I also really love. Um, my, this is a context that isn't afraid of good bullet points. They're good at not overthinking things. And all of that has been good for me spiritually. And it's been good for my, um, good for my, good for my preaching. Hmm. Well, wait, let me say this. Perfect. Okay. So, that, or was it that's, I don't remember. I just remember the word perfect needed to be in there. Yeah, um, man. Well, let's so let's with that big framework in place, let's mm. talk about let's talk about the big framework of what you're trying to do preaching wise. Uh, you know, I'm looking at your the media page of your website. It looks like yeah. you tend to do uh, almost thematic series. It looks like maybe like yeah, how do I you do. what kind of planning do you do for your sermons? How do you map that out? Great. A, a, a quick note on the role of preaching in the church and then then the map. I, as a pastor, I'm both a spiritual and an organizational leader, and I embrace all of that. And my task specifically is to help with church revitalization, um, and that involves both spiritual growth and organizational growth. And the role of preaching in that is huge because preaching has become for us a kind of, of centerpiece and a spiritual centerpiece. It sets the tone. It sets the theological priorities. It helps create congregational culture. So for us, preaching is really huge. It's in its it's a lot of stuff. It's teaching, it's proclamation, it's Christian formation. In a way, it's biblical counseling and the congregational for- culture informs the preaching and, 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 and vice versa. So when I do that, I maybe look at a, a year in general and I have sort of three times of year that I stick to a, um, I do r- roughly the same type of thing. So Lent, that period of time, uh, I sort of leave, I, I don't put anything in there, but pre Easter texts, um, in October, uh, is October is God and money every year. We spend a every month year. talking about faith and finance. Yeah. Um, and then Advent, uh, other than that, I, I, uh, I know I've got say in January, I've got six weeks until Lent. So I'll do a six week series. Um, and then I'm in the Lent. I may never call it Lent, but we're the, like the resurrection didn't come out of nowhere, right? We're building up to the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. And then at, honestly, what I like to do, I don't always do it, but I like to do um, the post-resurrection texts are fantastic. So even after Lent, I might do Emmaus, Thomas, Simon, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Um, and then I've got I've either got a short pre-summer series or a summer series, back to school series. October is money month. November, we've got a short series or a few one-off sermons, and then we're on to Advent. 
Um, and so th those I'm topically open other than those three things, uh, Lent, Easter, Advent, Christmas, God and money. Um, and I just kind of, that's, that's where things get, um, kind of wide, wide open. And it, uh, so, I mean, what is that process? Like, do you already know what you're going to be doing next summer or is it kind of, you approach it one series at a time and then how do you discern what to speak to and what that's, to address? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I, um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I it, no it's a great it's a great question. The um I don't know a year ahead what I'm going to preach, but I know that kind of blocks of time that are coming and I may have a couple of ideas that are bouncing around in my head, maybe loosely have some idea a, a, a year um in advance, but it doesn't really get built. Um it might get built one series at a time. And so part of what that process looks like is um what I'm what I'm doing now and I'm loving is to pick an elemental theme in scripture. So this summer we did a theme called water. Yeah, that's it. And we just went through five or ten of the water texts in the Bible. Baptism, foot washing, flood, Jonah, walking on water, Amos, let justice roll down like waters. And I don't know why I love that so much, but I do. It's it's great for biblical literacy because you just let the text lead you. Um, and you just pick a, pick a theme, get some out of the Old Testament, some out of the New Testament, and good things happen. Um, last year, I think a year, a little more than a year ago, I got, I, I got, into, uh, I got into rock stacking, um, which is just where you, you just take rocks and stack them on top of each other. I, I just did this on my own. Um, I did this for my own self-care. I did it just to have fun and not to be a pastor. I just did this for, for, for me. Um, but then all these people started asking me about my rock stacks and neighbors would ask me and the police would ask me and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and people on social media would see it. And so all these folks in my church were like, Oh, why do you do this? What is this about? This is so interesting. And so there was such a, a groundswell of interest. I, f I feel like I owed I owed it to give people something. I felt like I, I inadvertently created this interest and I, I had to be a good steward of it. So last summer I, I preached a series called School of Rock and I preached on a lot of the rock references of the Bible, um, Ebenezer's and Standing Stones and my rock yeah. and my redeemer. And we ended with the resurrection of Jesus and rolling the stone away. And, it, you know, if I go for one of these elemental themes, um, I try to begin and end the series with something Christological, uh, but in the middle, it's biblical literacy, and I try to pick a mix of old and new. Um, another thing that we do, it, it doesn't always happen, but um, once in a while, we'll preach on a theme that is relevant, especially relevant for our church. So this January, we had a lot of transitions, mostly good, but also some growing pains. And we had been bouncing around this phrase for a while, blessings and adjustments, and we found that um, there's some sort of relationship, there's some sort of dynamic relationship between there's some blessings that have to be actively received. They require adjustments. And some of us see the blessing, but we don't see the adjustment. And some of us see the adjustment and we lose sight of the blessing. And part of our theme text for that was Isaiah 54 two, which I've preached a couple of times. Enlarge the sight of your tent because God's going to bless you and you need to you need to be prepared. You need to make some adjustment for this blessing that is coming right now. And so that. That is a series that came from 
a kind of realization of the season of life we were in as a church. And, we, and now my leaders use that phrase like, well, like this is a situation of blessings and adjustments. Like we have more kids in church and it's more work and we need more childcare and it's, it's more work, but it's a blessing. And that framework, uh, has, has super helped us. Um, we also, what we try to do, and it doesn't always happen. Um, but it's fun when we can integrate something into the life of the church with a service ministry and a sermon series. So one of the first series um, like this we did was called Jail Mail. And it got started because a leader in our denomination suggested that all of our churches study the book of Philippians, which like twists my arm, right? I'll preach on Philippians. Heck yes. And uh, Philippians was written while Paul was in jail. It's jail mail. And as a part of that series, we did two prison ministry oriented service projects. Um, One of them was we bought a bunch of coffee from um, a ministry called the Underground Coffee Project out of the Northwest. It's amazing. Uh, They take ex-felons and teach them how to be artisan coffee roasters. It gives them an honest living. It's a great holistic ministry, supports organic growers in South America. And to this day, we, we actually buy all of our coffee for church from this ministry. So that is that extended way beyond the series. The same time, we also linked up with a women's prison ministry in town. We shared a meal with them. I think we had a game night with them, a sort of fellowship night with them. And so uh, it's not just, I'm not just conveying data to people, but I want what we do and what we say to sort of be integrated um, into the life of the church. And it doesn't always work that way. Um, But when it does, it's great. During the water series, we did a service project where we tried to provide clean water filters to folks in, in, in third world countries. And that has been, uh, that has been really good when we can kind of get all the arrows pointing in the same direction. So uh, I'm circling back on some of this, yeah, e- even to some of your role of preaching stuff. Uh, yeah. Perfect, by the way. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> is, it seems like as I reflect on some of the Anabaptists that I've had, and this might not be as true. I feel like you might be the third church of the brethren that I've had. Oh, rock and roll. Um, but I might be confusing some of them with a different variation of brethren. <laughs> Listen, man, it's, it's confusing. It's totally, yeah. it's totally like, here's, here's what I say. What, like what you just said, John, that's the reality. Like I'm a, right. I'm a professional, man. I'm a church nerd. Like I do this for a living. And if I can't keep track of yeah. the 40,000 Christian denominations that exist, how can I expect people who are a part of another Christian tradition or are completely outside the Christian faith looking in, how can I expect them to make sense of any of this? Um, and, and so I, 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 I love my denominational family, but I don't expect name recognition. I don't expect people to, yeah. um, I don't expect people to know. Um, I don't expect people to, to know stuff. Cause if we church nerds can't keep it straight for real, man, um, how, how, how can anybody else keep it all straight? Yeah. 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 Well, the the question that was coming out of that was, mm-hmm. it seems like several of the Anabaptists, uh, for them, the the role of preaching is a much more communal, um, you know, almost start a midrash, mm-hmm. whereas it seems like your bent is a little bit more like de- somewhat declarative, speak into the life of the con- congregation, frame the life of the congregation. Is that, I mean, is that a fair inferring on my part is it do you feel like what you do in your your sermons might be a little bit different from what a lot of anabaptist preaching might look like you know i i don't i'm i don't know enough about the landscape of anabaptist preachers to know what they do i do know that um that there is a that's a two-way street that 
preaching informs congregational culture, but congregational culture also informs my preaching. And I, I haven't talked about that, but two, two ways in which that works. Um, one of them is, is I love to hear from people and I love to hear them tell their stories. Uh, so last year, there were some times when I would do 50 face-to-face meetings a month with people. Wow. Um, there's a couple of months where I was hitting 70, 75 and that, and that was, that was too much of a good thing. But, um, you know, when you, when you get with people and some of those are organizational and some of those are logistical, um, and some of those are organizational and logistical and they turn into pastoral counseling. If I'm a high contact pastor, I want to be. And if I've got my finger on the pulse of my people and what they're doing, that always informs my preaching. And so why should I pick uh, some story off the internet of something that happened to somebody else when somebody in my church, like God is moving in their life now. And if I get their permission, I can share, I can share part of their story. Uh, and so that comes from just um, being, listening to my people and listening for what the spirit is doing in the life of my people. So in that sense, um, people are in my church are informing what I say I'm just, they're providing the ingredients and I'm cooking dinner. Um, that's, that's part, that's part of it. The yeah, other thing, like yeah, the other thing is, um, so we have a, a 1030 AM worship service and I preach and a, and a sermon is not a dialogue. It's a monologue. It's I'm one guy talking, but we have a 915 AM Bible study and, um, the role of that Bible study has sort of changed over time. Initially that Bible study, um, was the place where I would share the stuff that didn't make it into the sermon. Cause I'm like, I produced all this great material and I'm not, and I'm you're, the sermon's just the tip of the iceberg. And so if there's something especially geeky or obscure or uncertain, or it just didn't lend itself to the sermon, I'd be like, Hey, I've got this. Sec- these are the leftovers from the meal I prepared that like, let's eat. Um, and it was always very dialogical, very questioning, very call and response. I'm really facilitating group participation at 915. So I used to take the stuff that didn't make it into the sermon. I shared it then. But then my, my the people who were there, dude, they really want to be there at 915. And they really sink their teeth into uh, the text and their questions. They just bring it. And they were saying stuff that was so good in that 915 class. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I, I want to preach what you're telling me. Hmm. And so now what I do is the sermon that I'm preaching um, at 1030 actually started the previous Sunday at 915. Yeah. And I might come with a ton of research. I might come with very little. And some of them will come with a ton of research or none. And they'll just chew on it and process it. And we don't have to come to any conclusions. But we almost always do. And that is that uh, doesn't determine, but definitely informs what I share because I I believe at that point it's a spirit it's the spirit speaking through the community. And honestly, man, it's just fun. It's just yeah, really fun. really fun. All right. Well, so that that's a good segue uh, for let's talk about then what what does the process of any individual sermon look like? I mean, I, obviously, you've planned out enough, you know, for the series that you know easily the Sunday before what your text or theme oh, yeah. is going to be. So you're oh, yeah. coming and bringing it to that study. But why don't you just walk us through a timeline of how you put a sermon together? Yeah, perfect. So I'm obviously bouncing around ideas, hopefully a couple of months in advance. The actual writing is a week at a time. 
So I may have collected odd notes here and there, but um, I don't really start writing, writing usually, um, honestly, usually until Wednesday because Sunday at 9.15, maybe we get a first crack. Uh, Monday is my day off. Um, Tuesday is staff meeting and administrative catch-up day, and maybe I'll take an early swing uh, at the sermon. Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, I just hit it for a couple of hours. So I do my best work when I can devote several hours a day for several days in a row. Um, These folks who can sit like down and produce start to finish. uh, I totally envy them. I'm not day. Yeah. Who are those people? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of them are on your podcast, bro. I've heard. I know. I know. I I don't, uh, I don't have that. That's, that's not my gift. I usually can't even do it in two days. Um, So if I try to take two or three or four, consecutive days and and chop at it for a couple of hours if things go long i have to spend a few hours on saturday and i don't like to do that but um i I do that when i have to honestly this is one of those cases where you ask the pastor's wife (laughs) um if i'm working with a new text or breaking new ground or going after something i know very little about my wife will ask me almost every week or every couple of weeks, hey, is this a totally new scripture, a totally new topic for you or not? Because she knows it's more likely to eat into family time on Saturday if I'm breaking, if I'm breaking totally new ground. So yeah. that's, that's sort of how the process works. Um, and even though, honestly, Monday, I do a great job of shutting off and I do a great job of not thinking about work. I spend time with my wife. We hang out. We take a hike. We putz around town. But I'll be completely not thinking about a sermon, and something will come to me in a flash on Monday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Text it to myself, shut off the brain, uh, and then and then come back. Uh, so, but but Friday afternoon, I finish the PowerPoint. I may not email it to my to my team until Saturday, but I try to finish um, finish up everything on 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 Friday and Saturday. Sometimes there's ministry stuff, and sometimes there's family stuff. Um, and then I wake up Sunday and, and, uh, and do my best to preach my heart out. So you said sometimes even before you get into the week, you've collected odd notes. Oh what yeah. Is, what is that? Is that text into yourself? What's your process look like for collecting those? So you've got them it tucked is, away. It's ugly, man. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a completely inelegant process. I've had friends recommend, uh, these beautiful note taking systems, which for some reason, uh, it's just not my world. Like I, I sort of feel like I can curate a beautiful note-taking system, but that takes so much stinking time. It doesn't. It doesn't save me time. It sort of creates. It sort of creates work for me. So yeah. I've got. A, I probably got a pretty good recall. Thank God. Uh, and I've always got a bunch of uh, things sort of floating around in my head or in my heart and Word documents. That's mostly. That's mostly what it is. So I've got. Um, if I if I know I'm preaching on something a week or two or a month or two from now and I see something on TV. Well, I, well, I should say that. I don't watch TV. Uh, I don't, I don't have to see something on the TV at the gym or I yeah. see something, um, uh, see something out in the world. Uh, I'll maybe make a quick note to myself and, and, and come back to it later, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty bare bones process. So then, then when you, and then of course you have, you know, notes from a conversation on Sunday, but then when you're settling in the actual week of, mm-hmm. is there a certain, uh, building process that you go through in terms of reviewing all that? Like what's your study of the text look like? Yeah, great. Um, uh, so that has really changed over time for me. Um, I, I I was not preaching consistently when I was 17 or 19, but I was definitely preaching occasionally. And um, 
I've, I, after I've been at this for off and on sort of for 20 years, um, that, that process has sort of changed for me. So my undergrads and, and my grad school days, when I had access to a theological library and um, I would hit up 10 or 20 or 30 commentaries for a single person. Wow. I'm a sponge by nature. Strength finders, one of my top five is input. And so um, I, I just I just like to do that. I, it's way less now. Um, in large part because I'm not just writing sermons, I'm pastoring administration, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Um, but, and I still hit up a commentary or two or three for every sermon. Now, what I'm more likely to do, what I've been doing for the last maybe year or so, is I just blitz a bunch of sermons online. Hmm. Um, I like to find them in writing because I can read them faster than I can yeah, listen to yeah. them. Um, and I'll just gobble up the first 10 sermons I can find from anybody and I am completely non-discriminating here. It's like random seminarian blogs or celebrity pastor sermons or some detailed outline and janky type from a backwoods fundamentalist preacher. I, I'll just take all of it in because I, I honestly, I believe God's at work in all of it. And I just want to ingest as many different samples as I can. And even if I don't get any content out of it, there's something about that input that really primes my pump. Um, so how do you... How do Go you ahead. find these? I mean, I know that you've got like websites, the, Go like the Google today and no, Sermon Central. Google's, the Google's man. I honestly, it's it, that's it's a dirty secret, but it, it's it's almost random. There's that many sermon manuscripts to be found online when you just search by text. Try it for five minutes and see what you find. <laughs> I'm serious. Okay, it, it, we'll do it right it. now. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and I. Um, so what happens then is if two or three mention a significant Greek word, like it's way easier for me to do a sample of 10 sermons and somebody's like, oh yeah, like there's a couple of them said there's a cool Greek word. Then I'll go chase down that Greek word and see if I can find the same thing that they found. But I don't, I, I no longer feel the need to start by translating the New Testament from Greek in order to, in, in the hopes that maybe in panning for gold, I'll find a nugget. I uh, sort of am more interested in what the other prospectors say. Hey, there's gold in them, their hills, and there's there's not gold in these hills. And I sort of I sort of start there. Um, if there's a turn of phrase that they use or like, I'll sample that with credit in my notes. Um, and maybe again, maybe I just use nothing. Like I listened, I I I was doing research for one. Um, particular scripture. And I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to this famous charismatic guy and I'm going to listen to this famous Calvinist guy. And I don't remember what the text was, but it was something pretty, it was like the genealogy of Matthew or something. Right. And the charismatic guy was like, this is all about speaking in tongues. I was like, Oh, like that's sort of you're preaching out of your tradition, but not really preaching out of the text. And the Calvinist guy, I'm like, all right, man, hit me. And he was like, this is all about total depravity. And I was like, man, you're not preaching on the text, right? You're preaching on your pet projects. And even if even if I don't get any content from my sampling, that sampling is in itself a lesson. And I go, okay, I've got to not preach on things I like or preach I want to say. These two guys preached out of their tradition, and that's okay. But that pushes me harder into the text itself. I don't know why that's helpful for me. It's probably my wacko personality, but it really um, – it really is helpful for me in the earliest stages is to sample as much material as possible. And then I'll get a lead from that. I'll have an idea or a concept, um, a thread I can pick up on. And then I'll, I'll maybe hit up research tools or something like that after, after that point. And is that when you say research tools, that's when you're hitting the books on your shelves or Bible software or whatever that might be. Yeah. And I don't, and again, I, I'm not, um, 
I'm I'm way less of a book guy than I used to be. I'll hit up a couple of commentaries or honestly, the Greek stuff online is you can get some good basic stuff, um, basic stuff there, there too, or the language studies online. If you just want a quick reference, um, I'm preaching for 25 minutes, so I'm not doing major. um, Yeah, I'm not I'm not doing I'm not doing a, a, a seminary lecture, but if I can find enough that I'm interested in or enough to work on. And now if I can get an ebook or I can click, click and buy something from NT Wright or whomever online, I can get it's whatever I can get quick. It, it's honestly expediency plays a role when you're a pastor and not just a preacher. And yeah. expediency isn't I don't want that ever to be the, the sole driver but I wear a lot of different hats and I want to be a good steward of, of, of all of those. And it, it, where I feel like God's really looking out for me is when I've coffee with somebody on Wednesday and it fits perfectly with my sermon this week or next week or whatever. That's where you feel like, that's when you realize that it's all, everything you do is sermon preparation. Um, even I go on a run and I take a break and I don't think about it. And I, and I just, I, I have things come to me when I'm trying to not work. Um, that it's, it's all, it's all in, if it's integrated into your lifestyle, um, which I believe is what discipleship is, um, then it, and it comes from your life, then you've got the material for, um, to be able to share with, with your community. So do most of these pieces come together for you? The, the fundamentalist backwards preachers, you know, turn a phrase and the story from someone in your congregation and this little Greek thing that you ran across, do all these come together for you while you're sitting there with a Word document you yep. know, for two hours, or is it when you're out yep. about running? Or yep, I mean it's both. Um, and so I I I know after a couple of hours in front of the computer, for whatever reason, I fatigue. And so if, if I if I can put in good two or three four hours in front of the computer to stretch, that's good. And then I walk away from it and don't think about it. And then I'll be in the shower and something will come to me. Yeah. Um, so that that um, and it's not that I'm always thinking about it. It's somehow in the setting. It's the gift of rest, right? You, it's the gift of Sabbath. You set it aside and you don't think about it and you don't work on it. And then you feel like, you know, it's brain science or the Holy Spirit or all of the above. And that's that's sort of how it comes. Yeah, yeah you, you've, you've paraphrased per, uh, perfectly <laughs> how um, how my process sort of works. And then I just sort of wrestle all that information into some sort of co- some sort of coherent, uh, communicable form. And that's. Uh, that's that's what I say every week. So you don't have a structure that you follow or anything like that. It's just how do all these pieces fit together? I um I, I sometimes wish I had a um a structure that I always went to. And I'm I'm aware enough of sermon structures that I've got some tools in my toolbox that I can reach for if needed. So um, you know, I had a, a guy in my church who was a great presenter for uh his company and, and he said all presentations boil down to um, fill in the blank can do fill in the blank by fill in the blank. Um, and that, that doesn't fit everything, but it's helpful. Like, um, people who need forgiveness can find forgiveness by turning to Jesus, right? Fill in the blank can do fill in the blank by fill in the blank. Hmm. And, um, presentationally that helps if you need that kind of focus, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Lowry's loop and, and some of those other things. And if that, if that's the right tool for the job, that's the tool that I'll reach for, but I don't necessarily have a super standardized format. That said, I, for a while, I was really interested in a kind of narrative preaching that followed a narrative arc or whatever. And those are awesome. 
I just, I can't do that every week. And when I started to watch Ted talks and stuff, um, I'm like, I'm so over sermon points and I'm so over bullet points. And then I go to Ted talk and here are these amazing people at point one, you know, right, right, right. point two, point three. And so I go, okay, uh, that's, a. Uh, um, while scripture itself is not organized that way most of the time, uh, it's okay if I'm trying to make um, a teaching from scripture, if I'm trying to make that portable and memorable for people, it's okay to give people a few points and say, there's more to the Bible than my points. But these are things that are helpful to me. These are my observations. These are my questions. These are my take-homes. These are my takeaways. I want to give people something portable and hopefully something actionable. I want to give people something they can do. That, uh, By the way, that's where, even though I don't say it very much, that's where the sort of Anabaptist um, roots are, are kind of showing because I don't just want to affect people's thinking for 25 minutes. I don't, we, we, I don't want people to just go deeper into living into their heads. I'm not interested in speculation. I'm not even that interested in abstraction. Um, every Sunday for a while, my wife would come, we'd be driving home after church and like, honey, how was my awesome sermon? And, and, and she would say, you didn't tell me how you didn't tell me how And I got really mad and it was, it's great advice. And so now in my sermon writing, I go, how, okay, abide in Christ. Yes. And we can sing songs and pray, abide, abide, abide. What does that, what does that mean? How does that work itself out tangibly? And some of these grand theological ideas come down to really simple behaviors and really simple human interactions. And the more I can uh, make it less abstract and more actionable, um, that is uh, incarnate ministry at that point. It's a big word. Um, but it, it, the more I can say, okay, well, the ministry of hospitality is really important to me. And I can say, oh, the ministry of hospitality is really great and get everybody pumped up about what may be an abstraction. And then we say, walk across the room, look someone in the eye, share your name, invite them to coffee and just listen. There you've got actionable steps um, that are very, very simple that come out of a theological framework, but you're not um, arguing about theory. You are, I hope, living the faith. Yeah. So do you feel like that's where your passion for context and knowing your surroundings comes in the most? Is. Yeah. Of, of course it is. Of course it is. Because um, I don't want to, I don't want to yell at somebody who's doing it wrong. Um, I want to lift up people who I feel like are, are living the way of Jesus in a way that is emulatable and that I want to emulate. And if I've got stories from my church of people who are actually doing it, all the better. Yeah. All the better. Well, uh, we'll start, we'll start working towards winding down here, but do you have some favorite, uh, like resources that have shaped the way that you think about preaching or the way that you think about contextualizing or any of that that might be helpful to share or even, you know, general Bible reference books? Yeah, great. So um, at this point, man, this is the uh, I, <laughs> I am I'm just way less of a book guy than I've than I've ever been. Yeah. And that's I was maybe, anticipating that answer from what you maybe said. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that, right? No, but that's totally that's, fine. That's uh, when I have when I have observed pastors from a variety of backgrounds who um, who are deep in their neighborhood and deep in scripture. That's when I go, OK, I. I can't necessarily take what they do and transplant it from one place to another, but I can, um, I can be a student 
of the ways in which they are a student of 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 the scripture and of their um, and of their context. And I am at this point, I am so much more interested in people's actual lives than I am in um, somebody's somebody's and I've wrote a book right I have nothing wrong with nothing wrong with books but I'm more I'm more interested in people's experiences of reality than I'm a sort of polished product that may or may not be saleable so like for example um, there's a lady in my church she's relatively new um, not new to the faith but she's new to our congregation and and she told me because of her childhood and because of her past she said Jeremy I was a woman who hated women and you know she told me her sort of life story and gradually she got invited to participate in a women's bible study which is anathema right like you hate other women and ironically you get invited to a women's bible study she's there they don't know uh, she she is who she is and feels how she feels they ask her because she they see leadership qualities in her how would you like to lead this women's bible study now she's in a place where she's leading uh, a group of people that she said that she that was so hard for her to not hate and how her life was transformed over that process of unlikely leadership and being ironically called into the thing she wanted nothing to be a part of that uh, is amazing and now she's she's devoted her life to women's ministry that story of transformation is so much more compelling than some goofy illustration i could dream up or even though I love academia, something that would that would a seminary professor would maybe give me an A on. I'm I'm far more interested in the real stories of of real people, um, it, because uh, at that point I'm just saying what God is doing, and uh, I I man, you know I, I I live for that stuff. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sway one last question here. Yeah. That's, do uh, that's a. Um, just because I know your context a little bit too, because mm-hmm. we have a mutual friend who works with you, my friend, yes. my friend Joshua. Yeah, Joshua uh, Longbreak. I call him uh, my associate minister of awesomeness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so from the little bit I've talked – hi, Joshua, because I know he'll listen to this. Um, <laughs> from the little bit I've talked to you, I've picked up that you and Joshua do not have the same personality. Yeah, um, yeah. And, which is great, which is fantastic. Totally. And I also know that, you know, I – just from talking to him, I know that one of the things that you're working with him on is even helping him with how he works on sermons. So I'm curious for you, like so much of your sermon prep is built around what works for your personality. Like you want to be in stories. Oh yeah. yeah. So what's it look like for you to kind of pass along to him some skills, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know, like what's it look like for you to for for you two to have conversations about what sermon prep looks like that might be true for him, even though his in your context, even though his personality is different from you. Sure. There's sure. a question in there somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. A, a perfect question. It's perfect, John. <laughs> and, and it's 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 funny because uh when I you and I get done talking, my next appointment is to meet with Joshua and go over his sermon manuscript for Sunday. Yeah. Um so for he and I structurally that looks like Three or four weeks out, he does a couple of drafts of a manuscript, and we um, we get to greater and greater clarity um, as we get closer to the Sunday he's preaching. He's maybe once every six weeks or something, once every four weeks ish, preaching. The um, I I don't expect him to be me, 
Sure. What what I do want is for him to be the very best version of himself that he is, and that and that and that Christ is forming. And so, um, one of the questions I ask when he'll we'll go through his manuscript, and he says great stuff because he's crazy gifted. I'll I'll say, okay, this part of your sermon, who are you talking to? Um, and like, are you talking to? the people who you know are going to be there? Are you talking to the people who are listening to us online and lurking uh, who haven't met us yet? Are you talking to people from your past or people from a past experience? Um, and that's the best gift. One of the best gifts that I can give him is just asking that question. Who is this for? Um, is this for you? Is this for me? Is this for the staff? Um, and so that is a good question. I think for any of us to ask, because yeah. if like, um, like if I like, you know, if I if Jeremy argued with some professors in undergrad or grad school and I'm writing a sermon that's really against them, well, that doesn't make that's not true to what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I'm in my mind, maybe I'm scoring points against them. Or I'm winning, winning some argument in my head. But that's not again, that's not um, that's not the 90 something year old lady on oxygen who's who who tells you every Sunday that God loves you and so do I. It's not the person who's um, struggling with depression in your church and they're spiritually seeking. It's not it that's it, not who you're really talking to. So you want to talk to who you're talking to um, and not talk to something else. And that it, you can do that regardless of what of what um, of what your personality is. So that would be um, that would be one way I I I sort of I sort of hopefully um, help inform yeah inform his his preaching i'm super i'm a high energy dude and i'm generally really um really optimistic and i'm i talk fast and i preach fast and his i am more of an exciter and he is more of a uh, of a soother in terms of tone yeah and honestly that our our church digs that they'll come to me it's like you guys are really different and we like and we're, we dig it and we support it and we support um, your ministry and joshua's ministry so that's good for i think that sort of a little bit of variety of exposure is good for a church. So they know that, um, so they see the gospel taking shape and taking form in a couple of, in a couple of different ways through a couple of different preachers. We had a children's or children's ministry director preach the other Sunday and that was, she was great. Um, and you know, she and I'll talk some afterwards about, about, um, about that message. Does that answer your question, John? It does. Yeah. No, I mean, part of it is, I am curious, part of what my hope for the podcast would be is that we can also like, form each other and form another generation of preachers. Yeah, and yeah, right. so it just seemed like a unique instance to ask a question since I know the difference between the two or have a perception of the difference yeah. between the two of you. Yeah, well, for sure. If somebody wants to keep up with what's happening with you and with Circle of Peace, uh, tell us about any social media you're on or websites, all of those kind of. Yeah, great. Places. So we have... Um... We have a we feel pretty good for a small church. I think we've got a pretty smoking website. Um, if you go on there, you can um, go to the media page. There are sermons on there. They're, uh, they're talking about putting sermons on video, which is both terrifying and exciting. Hmm. Um, the Facebook is pretty good. We got a new guy on our communications team who's a beast, and he is um, he's doing some decent work on 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 Facebook. And we got Twitter and Instagram and stuff. And and Long Break's doing a good job. Of, initiating that. I think the with the most content is just going to be on our website. So circleofpeacechurch.com. Um, go on there and look around and that that ought to get somebody started. But it's always my it's my hope 
that the website is a gateway drug <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to an actual relationship because we uh, we want to we want to meet people. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much. Uh, I expected I would enjoy this conversation. You know, I, I enjoy all of them. I don't know why. I, I even say that in the intro every time, but I really did enjoy this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> John, so thanks for I, making the time. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time as well. And um, we're praying for you and for your ministry, not only with this podcast, but with your church and for your family and everything. I, I know we've not met, but we're on the same team and I'm, I'm rooting for you. Thanks so much. Yep. Take care, man. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, if you're benefiting from the podcast, I always appreciate uh, reviews on iTunes as a way to help others or sharing on social media. And again, if you're really finding it helpful, it'd be helpful for me if you'd consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Sermonsmith, where you can pledge to give uh, a certain amount of money for each time a show is published. Thanks so much for listening.